Welcome to Morning Seminary. I'm your host, Simeon Sideways, and in this podcast, we'll explore some of the teachings of the Book of Mormon, a strange book published in 1830 that Mormons claim is a historical account written by people from an ancient world. For now, let's ignore the Book of Mormon's mentions of horses, elephants, chariots, silk, steel, wheat, and all the other stuff that didn't exist in pre-Columbus America, or even how author Joseph Smith tried to sell the copyright to a fiction publisher. We are here to read some stories together. If you grew up LDS, you probably memorized the first sentence of 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. And then you forgot the rest. The Book of Mormon is organized into different books, with each named after its author. The first book is titled 1 Nephi, named after the golden child of the prophet Lehi. Nephi will become the ancestor to the Nephites after his family leaves Jerusalem and sails to... somewhere along the east coast of the Americas. Mormons have yet to pinpoint a location that they can both agree on and that doesn't contradict actual history. So why did Nephi's family leave home? Because Lehi has a dream. And in his dream, Jerusalem is destroyed and all the survivors are taken as slaves in Babylon. Lehi goes around preaching this stuff to everyone living there. You're all gonna die! And when the Jews heard these things, they were angry with him. Here's where our story begins. God commands Lehi's family to flee Jerusalem, leaving all their possessions behind to go hide out in the wilderness. So they leave, and there in the comfort of his tent, Daddy Lehi has another vision. The Lord hath commanded me that thou and thy brethren shall return to Jerusalem. Turns out Lehi forgot something back home. A set of prophetic writings engraved on what are called the brass plates. God conveniently commands Lehi to tell his sons to go get them for him. Side note, earlier Nephi calls himself exceedingly young. Which makes it pretty wild that his rich dad who just skipped town was asking him, a child, to go into town and get his stuff. Even worse, the brass plates are in the possession of a terrible guy named Laban. And now, Lehi says to Nephi, Behold thy brother's murmur, saying it is a hard thing which I ask of him. Therefore go, my son, and thou shalt be favored of the Lord, because thou hast not murmured. Favored of the Lord for not whining about having to clean up his dad's mess. That's a new one. If you go back and get my stuff without complaining, God will be happy with you. Lehi screwed up and left the world's only copy of the scriptures with the worst person ever. But rather than get them himself, he invokes God to make his kid do it. Nephi doesn't mind, though. He is a one-dimensional good guy. His descendants, the Nephites, are God's people throughout most of the Book of Mormon. The bad guy? Nephi's brother, Laman, the father of the Lamanites, whose people will be cursed next chapter with a skin of blackness for their wickedness. While LDS.org says there's no doctrinal basis for dark skin being a curse, it's right here in the Book of Mormon. And as you can imagine, it's had major consequences throughout church history. Until the 1970s, for example, black people were banned from receiving temple endowments, effectively banning them from the highest degree of Mormon heaven. People of mixed race had to furnish ancestry charts proving that, should some black DNA exist in their blood, the amount was small enough not to piss off God. Mormons had a church adoption program for indigenous children, 
aimed at rooting out the superstitions of their ancestors to help them become a white and delightsome people. Apostle Spencer W. Kimball called this a fulfillment of prophecy, mentioning how one adopted girl's skin had become many shades lighter than her parents. At last, he says, the Indians are suitable. Anyway, back to Nephi and his important mission to retrieve the brass plates. Four of Lehi's sons are enlisted to the task. Nephi and Sam, who are good guys, and Laman and Lemuel, who are constantly called the worst people ever. So our brother thinks he can build a ship. <laughs> the brothers return to Jerusalem, at which point they draw straws to pick who will go and talk to Laban. It falls to Laman, who, to his credit, follows through and approaches this psycho to ask for his dad's book back. Laban tries to have him killed. Thou art a robber, and I will slay thee. Laman manages to escape, sprinting back outside the city walls to rendezvous with his brothers. He wants to get out of there and go back to dad's tent. But Nephi has an idea. They'll go to their house, get all the expensive stuff they left behind. A million diamonds! and offer their belongings as a trade. But Laman and Lemuel don't want to go back. They're afraid of what Laban might do if he's given another chance. It's here that Nephi says one of the Book of Mormon's most iconic lines. I will go, I will do the thing the Lord commands. I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. If God commands it, it can be done, period, end of story. This dubious logic will come into play later. Anyway, they bring their gold, silver, and Fabergé eggs to Laban to ask for their dad's plates back. But just like before, he tries to kill them. They escape, but outside the city walls, Laman and Lemuel begin beating the piss out of Nephi and Sam. And they did smite us even with a rod. But then... A miracle happens. Behold, an angel of the Lord came and stood before them, and he spake unto them, saying, Why do you smite your younger brother with a rod? Know ye not that the Lord hath chosen him to be a ruler over you, and this because of your iniquities? Even the angel has a go at Laman and Lemuel. Not once does the Book of Mormon say a single good thing about them. Behold, ye shall go up to Jerusalem again and the Lord will deliver Laban into your hands. This time, Nephi decides he's gonna go alone. He walks back into Jerusalem, ready for whatever life hands him. I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. And you'll never guess what he finds. There on the ground is Laban, passed out drunk. Perfect. With no one guarding the brass plates, Nephi can scoot on over to the library and grab him scot-free. But God has other plans. Slay him, the angel says, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Why? Why does God need exceedingly young Nephi to kill? What's the logic behind this decision? Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. The Lord ain't the one slaying here, though. It's Nephi. The Lord could just as easily give Laban a heart attack or let him choke on puke. There's no reason to implicate a young boy in the murder of an unconscious man. Plus, why did Laban even have the plates in the first place? 
I can raise and lower my cholesterol at will. Why would you want to raise your cholesterol? So I can lower it. The angel explains that the brass plates are vital to God's aims and that murder is the only way to achieve them. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Still doesn't explain why Nephi has to kill this defenseless man, but I guess retrieving those plates is the only way to prevent the faithlessness of an entire nation. It's worth noting that later in the Book of Mormon, a prophet named Alma is forced to watch evil men burn hundreds of people alive. When asked why he doesn't intervene to stop them, Alma says that God doth suffer that they may do this thing, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them. In Alma's case, God lets bad things happen to good people, so he has evidence to judge the actions of the wicked. He lets the wicked go on to perpetrate more evil acts, so they can look really bad at Judgment Day. To me, possessing a sacred book seems less bad than burning hundreds of people alive, which is why I'm a little confused about God's insistence that Laban die in order to prevent something bad happening later. Anyway, Nephi gets his first kill. How? By cutting off Laban's f***ing head! And given that he strips off Laban's clothes to use as a disguise, this seems as brutal as it does impractical. Probably a lot of blood on those clothes. Now dressed as Laban, Nephi heads off to the treasury, where he meets the local librarian, a guy named Zoram. The disguise works. Nephi receives the brass plates, then commands Zoram to come with him out of the city. Zoram obliges, probably because he thinks Laban will kill him if he doesn't. As Nephi and Zoram reach the city's outer limits, Nephi's brothers spot what looks like Laban and start freaking out. Thinking Nephi is dead, they run away, causing Nephi to call out and identify himself. It's me, Jessica. Well, that does it for Zoram. Realizing that this guy isn't Laban, he makes a run for it, but in vain. Nephi seizes him and does, well, something totally consistent with this story. I spake unto him that he need not fear, that he should be a free man like us if he would go down in the wilderness with us. That if there does some pretty heavy lifting. What if Zoram refused? Was Nephi going to kill him? Is Zoram really free if he's coerced into leaving out of fear for his life? More and more, it seems like God picked the right guy to behead Laban. Nephi's a natural. Anyway, Zoram leaves with them as a free man, and they all live happily ever after. Wild ride, huh? Lot to think about there. A fever dream sends Lehi's four kids off to get his stuff back from a gangster. God commands a child to behead a defenseless man and a witness to the crime is falsely imprisoned when he could have just as easily been let go. I doubt anyone is surprised that God is taking people out. It's kind of his thing. After issuing the commandment of thou shalt not kill, God commanded Moses to kill the Midianites, Abraham to kill his own son, and Saul to slaughter every single Amalekite man, woman, child, and animal. Animal! He also flooded the entire planet one time. With Nephi, though, it feels different. After that rousing speech about how God doesn't give commandments people can't follow, 
Nephi almost immediately breaks the commandment of thou shalt not kill. Was murder the only way Nephi could have obtained the plates? I think it's time we consult the experts. The Fair Mormon Response Fair, the foundation for apologetic information and research, is the unofficial Nazgul, excuse me, apologist wing of the LDS Church. Having emerged in 1997 as a response to the sudden tidal wave of transparency that was the internet. Not only were Mormons poking around the church's questionable history and truth claims, but they were forming communities to discuss their doubts. The church couldn't let that stand. And since the formation of FAIR, they have written and erased countless bizarre responses to legitimate questions. What do they say about Nephi being commanded to break a commandment? Nothing, but they have plenty else to say about the incident. Here are some subtopics present on their page as of March 2022, before they unpublished it. Did Nephi commit cold-blooded murder when he killed Laban? No, murder laws were different back then. Was Nephi simply listening to a voice in his head as the result of a psychosis or delusion? It would be a possibility if it weren't for the fact that Nephi had just seen an angel. Why didn't God simply preserve Nephi's life using divine power instead of requiring him to kill Laban? God already did preserve Nephi and his brothers from being killed, twice. But also he's not a magician. That's not how God works. So God can save Nephi from dying twice, but saving him a third time would make God a magician? Isn't God a mystery? Or is that only when bad things happen to good people? Rather than find a non-lethal solution, God asks Nephi to kill because not doing that isn't how God works. <laughs> if you're confused, welcome to the club. Fair doesn't really have what we call academic standards, usually opting for avenues like nobody really knows anything or words are meaningless. That is if they don't just call it a conspiracy. It's the Grand Prix of rabbit holes. For example, when 51 people signed an affidavit attesting to the depravity of Joseph Smith's money-digging family, Fair calls it muckrakery, one man's personal vendetta that duped 50 other people into signing something that wasn't true, including the Smith's landlord, a man named Lemuel Durfee. Where did we hear that name before? Crentist. Your dentist's name is Crentist. But enough with Fair. Let's get back to the brass plates. Where can we read their words? They must be important, given all that Nephi went through to recover them. Well, they're gone. While Joseph Smith was dictating the Book of Mormon, his scribe, Martin Harris, asked to borrow the translated pages of Lehi to show his wife, Lucy. Lucy Harris, smart, smart, smart. She knew Joseph Smith was a con man, so she stole the translated section and asked Joseph to translate it again. Why not, right? If he was translating the real thing and not just making it up, Doing it a second time should be a piece of cake. But if major differences showed up between versions, he'd be proven as a fraud. Can't bullshit a bullshitter, though. Joseph Smith refused to translate it again, claiming that God commanded him not to give in to their wicked schemes. He ended up ditching Lehi's section altogether. Which is weird, because in 1 Nephi chapter 5, verse 19, Lehi says, These plates shall never perish. 
So Nephi and his brothers went through all that mayhem and murder just for Lucy Harris to screw everything up. Women, am I right? Oh well, the plates didn't matter anyway. Why? Because Joseph Smith didn't use any plates to write the Book of Mormon. He put a seer stone, aka rock, inside a hat and stuck his face in it. Whatever he envisioned inside became the Book of Mormon. This is a huge deal. For my entire Mormon life, any whisper of a rock and a hat was immediately dismissed as anti-Mormon conspiracy. A lie without substance made up by church critics to lead astray the weak of faith. So when the church officially admitted to it in 2013, it was a staggering blow for me and other lifelong Mormons. You sneaky mom! There were no plates. Nephi didn't need to cut off Laban's head and kidnap Zoram to get the plates back because Joseph Smith didn't need them to create the Book of Mormon. All that dwindle and perish and unbelief stuff was irrelevant because Joseph Smith just threw out Lehi's section to avoid being caught by Lucy Harris. Something God must have foreseen, right? You know what they say though, it takes two Mormons to change a light bulb. One to change it and the other to say nothing was changed. After fleeing town, losing everything, and getting the plates back, Nephi's hard work would ultimately become nothing more than a cautionary tale about not letting people borrow your stuff. The Book of Mormon is a bizarre work of fiction and a mostly boring read. I would leave it at that were it not for the countless relationships the Mormon Church destroys in its efforts to keep members from leaving. They grasp at increasingly weak straws to maintain relevance in a world that cares less and less about puritanical religion, painting critics like me as a bad influence with nothing better to do than harm the delicate faith of believers. The approach used by the apostate is common among those who are more interested in shadows than light. They regularly alter source material to avoid accountability for their racist and sexist teachings, Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites have to wait until 1829? And they shift the goalposts to keep members in the dark. It is not that they are secret, but they are sacred. Meanwhile, they continue to rake in 10% of their members' income amassing hundreds of billions of dollars to build a corporate empire while giving only a fraction of their coffers back in humanitarian aid. My hope is that telling these Book of Mormon stories in their entire context will shed some light on the maze of Mormonism without inviting any accusations of taking their doctrines out of context. Well, that's it for episode one of Morning Seminary. I'm Simeon Sideways. If you enjoyed listening, consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash morningseminary. A lot of work goes into writing and producing these episodes, not the least of which is crawling through LDS scripture and fair essays. Ick. Until next time, adieu. Note, if there was any terminology in here that you didn't understand, I highly recommend visiting rxmormon on Reddit for more information. <laughs>